let me tell you a little more about a story called Photopia. what I did there, that's the music I used in the other Photopia episode. You're going to notice a lot of that type of thing in this episode. So I'm just walking the streets of Toronto, not like these other podcasts that have professional recording environments. If I want to get a little time to myself, fucking hitting the streets is pretty much my only option. Sorry about the uh, wind sounds. I really shouldn't record stuff outdoors. So, one of the early episodes of EXO was an adaptation of a game called Photopia that I tried to do like a little radio play. And it's consistently one of people's favorite episodes. It's between Photopia and Roger Swan. Those are the two where I... You know, people will... Well, in the case of Photopia, they kind of apologize. Like, hey, I know... uh, I know you didn't write that, but that's my favorite episode. And I'm like, hey, man, that's fine. If I don't know, do Photopia. Like, there's no shame in that. That's actually one way that I'll kind of... You know, if I'm... Any, any kind of art, that's sort of how I gauge art in some ways, is do I think I could do something like that? Like, if I get a sense that, like, uh, I could do much better than whatever this is and I just get exasperated and bored by it and then there's times when I'm like yeah that's it would be tough but I could do this but I can see how tough it was and how much work they put into it and then there are times like Photopia where it's just fucking forget about it man there's no way I could do that there's just conceptually and then execution-wise, there's just, there's no chance. There's just no way I could have done what Adam Cadre did. I always find Photopia a little tough to talk about just because I grew up playing text adventures on my computer, and if you didn't play them, I don't know how much sense it makes, you know? Like this idea of a game that's just text and little puzzles that you figure out. You know, that was really fun when we were kids, and then when I grew up, uh... I just don't like puzzles, and those games are all about puzzles. It's all just problem solving, and I really am not, uh, I'm not a fan of that. But I was watching an interview with Adam Cadre that was outtake footage from a documentary about text adventures called Get Lamp. And I learned that he was not a fan of puzzles either. Like, he would play text adventures as an adult and get stuck, and he would, like, find solutions, you know, like the walkthroughs and just input the walkthrough into the game so the game would solve itself and then print that out and read it like it was a story. And that was partially what inspired him to do Photopia as a, as a linear story. And it's, it's something that people in this little text adventure community really pushed back against in some cases because they're like, well, this game doesn't have puzzles. How can you even call it a game? Which it really baffled me because at some point they changed, instead of calling these things text adventures, they changed the term to IF, to interactive fiction, which is a 
ludicrous misnomer. Interactive fiction, my fucking balls, it's just puzzles. It's not a story that you interact with. And then when Adam Cadre made actual interactive fiction, most people loved it, but some people, oh, this isn't like the old stuff that used to happen. I don't know whether I approve of this. Fucking nerds, right? Like, Jesus Christ. How can you not like Photopia, you autistic fucking idiot? Like, it's just unbelievable to me. <laughs> Although, I'm yelling at someone for their opinion on a fucking news group from 1998 on my podcast. I don't know. It's a weird world. What, what do you want me to tell you? Anyway, if... Uh, this episode gets you in the mood to revisit Photopia. You could, of course, go back and listen to the episode, and if you haven't heard it, of course, it comes before this one. But if you haven't played Photopia as a game, I really think it's worth trying out. I'll put a link on keithcourage.com. Our Adam Cadre's website is adamcadre.ac. Even though it's the same story, I really think the experience of it as a game is worthwhile. It's... I guess that it it helps that I grew up with video games also, so I mean, I'm just interested in game mechanics and game design, but it's just so crazy how Photopia works. How the parts about Wendy being told the story are like a traditional game, and then those reveal themselves to be a story that Allie is telling Wendy, and that the whole game itself is like Adam Cadre telling us a story the different sections have different colors that correspond with what's happening and then those colors relate to the Photopia machine at the end and just the the fact that you are inside this story like it's it's like a new method of of presenting literature where you're you're not just reading the story you can walk around in the story and you can look at objects in the story and you can you can be a part of it and the fact that the conclusion is inevitable is also part of the larger metaphor that in a story or a movie you know you're just going to absorb it and experience it and what happens happens there's a certain amount of subjectivity possible but but you know you can't change the ending where with photopia you think you can you know you think you can change what's going to happen and you can't and as a metaphor for the inevitability of death i mean there's just nothing nothing like that nothing else like photopia is the only member of this kind of art. It's the only one. It's brand new. Yeah, even after all these years, I mean, it came out in the late 90s. I just, I think about it all the time. I'm just, I'm obsessed with this thing. So in this episode, there's uh, an interview with Adam Cadre. And before Adam, uh, there's just little clips, little preamble clips by two other adventure game authors, Scott Adams and Stephen Grenad. And then I'm going to finish it with uh, a guy, Doug, that I met. He recently had a daughter, and on his podcast, the Slug is Doug podcast, he talked about how Photopia 
affected him when he heard the episode. One of the things that comes back to me is I remember in my second, no, in the first adventure, Adventureland, there was a bear. And I remember in my original version of the game, the bear fell off the ledge and died. And you get down on the bottom of the ledge and you find a dead bear. And I either got a letter or somebody talking to me saying, you know, that really put me off to find out I killed that bear while I was playing this. Why did you make me kill the bear? And so I redid the game and put in a slightly woozy stunned bear down at the bottom and then after that I did not want to put the player in a situation where they were feeling uncomfortable playing the game. I think the canonical example of that was Photopia uh, in 1998 which was um, I happened to be up against it with another game and I had been you know of course I'm nervous about all the other people you know how good is my game how's it going to be received so I'm playing through them and it's like oh that's crap that's crap that's pretty good. I don't know, that's about on my level. And then I hit Photopia and it's like, this is something completely different. This is so far and away beyond what we're doing over here that it was very obviously, at least in my mind, going to place, if not very high. I was expecting it to place first, but at least place very high. So I think that's a case where it was far and away beyond what the other games in the competition were doing. I mean, a lot of us were coming from, you know, we played Infocom games when we were young and we want to make new versions of them. Or, you know, I'm a programmer and this is a cool programming thing, so I'm going to write my own text adventure. And Adam was very much coming from the more literary side of things. Uh, you know, he did not grow up playing Infocom games. So he did not come from it as sort of an exercise in nostalgia or an exercise in trying to recapitulate what had happened before. He was coming at it as a completely new art form. And so I think that is part of why he was able to make that leap much faster than a lot of other people in the community. In 95 and 96, we were still having these discussions about can you have someone who is not a direct avatar for the player? Can you give them characteristics and a name? And, you know, maybe they don't like cheese or whatever. Can you give them standard kind of characterizations that you would see in static fiction and do it in interactive fiction? Some people are like, oh no, no, no way. The player will be too distanced from it. 
So you've got to make sure that they're nameless and they're faceless and they don't have any of those. And it's interesting to me that we were still having those debates up into 96, 97. And so that sort of gives you maybe a sense of what the community was like when something like Photopia came around. You're looking at a story told through text on a computer where you are interacting with it, sort of going back and forth and revealing bits of the story as you go along. So it's a chance to, in essence, have somebody tell you a story within the context of a game. I fired up one called A Change in the Weather by Andrew Plotkin, and it clearly was an independent effort. It wasn't, it wasn't for commercial release. It hadn't been test-driven by marketing division or anything like that. I poked around with a couple of the other uh, games, and I thought, huh, so you can just sit down and program one of these yourself. That that might be worth giving a try to. Yeah, I mean, let, let's let's take this medium for a spin and see what you can do with it. You know, the medium of interactive fiction was on my mind, and so as I read books, watched movies, and so forth, you know, naturally those would start to, you know, trigger ideas for you know, various projects that I might like to, to take a, uh, you know, a go at. You know, I was, I was always thinking about IF projects and things that I could do. I was actually working on one at the time. I was working on Vericella. Um, I had been working on that for about a couple of months. When I, you know, just to you know, check it out, uh, went to the movie theater and saw The Sweet Hereafter, because, you know, it seemed intriguing. I'd read some good reviews, didn't really know what to expect. And when I walked out of The Sweet Hereafter, I thought, you know, I don't really feel like continuing right now to work on Veracella with its lots and lots and lots of problem solving you know, I would like to work on something that, you know, ideally would come out being, you know, literary and beautiful and lyrical and poetic and all that other good stuff. 
ones that will last. And right here, what we've had is a good thing and it will last. Now these things will pass. It's a good one that will last. And right here, what we've had is a good thing and it will last. And if I had not just, you know, spent the last year or so just sort of soaking in the IF community, I don't know whether it would have occurred to me to try making an IF project out of this. I might well have tried some other medium. I might have thought, well, you know, can I write a book that does this? Can I come up with maybe a song or, or something? Perhaps interpretive dance. You know, because IF was on my mind, I, I naturally went there. Now, it's not as though I thought of a story and then said, okay, how can I adapt this for interactive fiction? I mean, interactive fiction was sort of my target medium before the elements of the story had even begun to coalesce. So, you know, a lot of people ask, well... Why did you even bother to make this into IF? You know, you should have just written it as a short story because it's so linear and not really interactive and so forth. And, I mean, I don't know. I don't think that a lot of people do what I, I just described a minute ago and, and say, all right, I've got this idea for a story. Now, what would be the ideal medium for it? Should it be a graphical computer game should it be a play in which all of the dialogue is recited in iambic pentameter, or should it be a piece of classical music? You know, the target medium and the story are sort of, you know, born together. So it's not really as though I was adapting something that had any prior existence. You know, the story coalesced around the medium from the get-go. The way that I described it earlier, when I said that, you know, I, I walked out of the suite hereafter and I wanted to, you know, come up with something that was more literary and trying to be beautiful rather than something that's full of puzzles and trying to be a challenging game. It's not like I just sort of, you know, made up a story trying to produce an emotional reaction. It's like when I, when I thought about what is it that I have within my, myself to share with people, one of the things that I wanted to, you know, try to evoke was uh, the, the feeling of, of my own sister's death uh, back, you know, many years ago. For hospitals and homes Answering the phone And what if I Could take us both away from here Far away, my dear
to the extent that people were moved by by Ali's death, you know, it wasn't just me saying, you know, ha ha, score, I managed to produce this emotional effect, you know, look at what a master of the, you know, literary arts I am. I did, I did feel as as though, you know, I was I was sharing a pretty deep part of my emotional life with people. fact that Photopia and the medium of interactive fiction allowed me to do that in a way that a lot of other media couldn't is is pretty significant when I, I think back about uh, on on the things that I've done you know creatively speaking and then as far as as the more you know philosophical and, and narratological aspects Absolutely, one of the things that I was interested in was what can you do with this medium aside from solving puzzles? And a couple of things are, one, and this is more important where uh, Photopia is concerned, is the idea of participation and complicity. You know, complicity especially vis-a-vis whether you can get out of the car at at the beginning of uh, the program. You may not actually save Ali, but at least you are not as directly complicit as somebody who is actually in the vehicle that kills her. But also, you know, on, on the flip side, all the people who have positive interactions with her, to make Ali not just someone you're reading about, but someone who, and not just someone who is important to these other people, but someone who is important to you as you are inhabiting this character. So to that degree, you know, interactive fiction allows a level of participation that that, uh, isn't really possible in a lot of other media. That's the story. Um, (laughs) You know, the the ending, it it is what it is. 
So it's not as though I was sitting in my chair thinking, Alright, so on the one hand, I could make it so that it's possible for the player to save Ali. On the other hand, I could make it so that it's impossible. What do I think would be the most effective? Never did anything like that. Never even considered the possibility of coming up with some set of commands that would leave you happily ever after. And why not? Because that just wasn't the story. I didn't consider that any more than I would have considered anything else that would have been entirely random. When people ask, did you consider having an option in which the player could have saved Ali? It sort of feels like, did, did you consider having a guest appearance by the ghost of Adlai Stevenson or something? It's like, no, that's not the story. <laughs> so. Welcome to Slug is Doug, episode 27. Hey, Doug here. Uh, this episode gets to be a bit of a downer. Um, but I think it's an important one. I kind of work through a bit of stuff. Um, but if, uh, like me, you're prone to uh, tearing up, and um, crying a bit. Uh, maybe it'd be best to listen to this in a spot where uh, <clears throat> you, you don't want to be seen crying. Um, or maybe you just want to skip it. Maybe you'd rather not hear about it. Uh, I realize that's a, that's a big claim, you know, on me saying you're going to cry. But if you do, you've been warned. Um... Nonetheless, I hope you enjoy it. All right. How are we doing? Are we recording? Looks like we are. So it's uh, it's election day. May second. And as you might be able to tell, I'm back in the car. Ribbles at sea. I'm just uh, just about to leave work early-ish. Uh, it's 6.30 p.m. Polls close at 9.30, so sort of taking my three hours, I guess, outside of work to get voting. Uh, more what I'm trying to do with it is get home. I want to see my daughter. I want to see my little girl. I mean, it's just Monday, but being away from her for this almost 12 hours already, 
has been has been just absolute torture for me today. It's this it's a strange attitude that's that in the the film industry that seems it really really seems anti anti family and I, I think I've talked about this before and. Part of the frustration I've always had about this job is that it, it just takes over your life. It just takes it over. It's expected that you basically leave your family for 14 hours a day. You don't get to have them anymore. And you know, you walk around the office these days. I guess now that I'm a parent, I notice these things. But everybody has their photos of their children, of, you know, them having fun with their kids somewhere, or some, some of the kids' artwork or something, just to remind them about the happiness that awaits them at home. Remind them what the hell they're missing, because they're working. You know, I, I can't help but have this feeling that I, I've, I've got to get I've got to get out of this but I'm kind of stuck in a position where it feels like I, there's nowhere I can go you know we, I've looked into going to, to, to school to become a, a teacher it means I have to take a year off it means I have to go back to school Take a year off, pay tuition, not have a year's worth of salary. I got a baby I gotta take care of. But I gotta feed, clothe, send to daycare. For fuck's sake, daycare. Holy shit, $1,800 a month. That's a second mortgage. That's more than my mortgage payment per month. I'm gonna have to borrow money in order to actually pay for this daycare in the next couple of years. And that's with two of us working. That's with two of us working. Fucking ridiculous. But anyway, I had a great weekend. I, I played with Clara. I read her stories. We cuddled and she napped. And she slept wonderfully and I fed her. I watched her. I watched her grow. You know, as much as it. A, a child can do that in 48 hours on a weekend. I watched her grow. And she did. I mean, she went from, you know, kind of knowing how to crawl on Friday night to basically being super fast this morning. And as I, I woke up this morning, she, she woke up with me at about 6 o'clock this morning. And I was able to actually feed her and see her 
this morning before I came to work, so that was nice. But it was also tough because I, it reminded me how much I love being with her. And then in my usual way, I started listening to podcasts. And I listened to one today that I probably shouldn't have because it ended up being very, very difficult for me. If you don't know about it, you should probably go listen to it. Um, there's a podcast called XO, done by Keith McNally. It's really good. He does some fantastic things on there. I think I've talked about it before. And it's always brilliant. I haven't heard an episode of that that didn't affect me somehow. So he did an episode a while back. It's probably, I think it was his ninth episode, XO number nine. It's called uh, Photopia. P-H-O-T-O-P-I-A. And what it is, is that he's, he's basically reading a short story that was created as an interactive piece of fiction, a piece of interactive fiction written by Adam Cadre, I think is his name. And it's just, basically what it is, it's a, it's a video game where, you know, like a text-based game. I don't know, I don't know if you ever played like King's Quest or something like that when you were a kid or, or... There was a game that we played on the Commodore 64 that was called Deadline, and you were a newspaper reporter, and you had to solve a murder. And it was all text-based. It was all turn-based questions, and you would read these paragraphs. This text would come up, and then you would say, you know, whether or not you grab something, talk to somebody, go north, go south, go east, west. So this guy's written this short story and kind of turned it into one of these text-based games. It is kind of linear in a way, and then no matter what you do, he's always kind of bringing you to the, to the end. His story is, is going to be told. And it's a story that's about one particular person, and her name is Allie. And it's told from the point of view of four or five different people. And in this interactive novel, in this game, you play the four or five people who know Allie. And I don't want to give anything too crazy away, but as I was listening to it, I had this vision This vision of my daughter. I had this vision that we were having a picnic or we were in a park and she was sitting in the grass and she was asking me questions about things. She was probably seven, maybe eight. Asking interesting questions, smart questions, questions that, that a precocious little child will ask. 
questions that make daddy think, that make daddy squirm, those kind of questions, you know? And it's tough, I see it now. Makes it hard to drive. But I can see her now. Sitting there. The weird thing is, though, when I see her, I, 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 in my mind's eye, I, she's like, you know, like I said, seven, eight, maybe ten, whatever. But the vision that I have of her, the, the this other vision that I have of her is, is as she is right now, this little innocent baby, this. This child, baby with barely any hair and these big brown eyes looking at me in this perfect skin and these, you know, little arms, little legs, little hands, and barely able to walk and just sort of baby chump all over her, right? And she's asking these questions that are just so tough. And all I can think is, that, you know, how proud I can be of her for asking these questions. And she eventually asks the question about what happens when you die, Debbie? think, well, that's just a question in general about death, but what, what it means to have something die. So I try to explain that to her. I explain, you know, well, it's, it's something that it doesn't have life anymore. It, it, it's no longer exists. It, it, I struggle and struggle and struggle and and try to explain what death is and she says no daddy not I I know what death is I want to know what happens when you die and like I said this was just a vision I had while I was listening to this episode of XO an answer. I don't know when it's going to happen. Of course, nobody has an answer. But all I know is it fucked me up for the rest of the day. All I wanted to do was just leave. I wanted to go home. with my little girl. I wanted to be there as she learns to crawl, as she learns to stand, as she learns to walk, as she learns to speak, as she learns to ask these questions that are so fucking difficult to answer.
every atom of my being was saying, just leave, just go home. But I can't. Not really. And that would just be silly. It's just sort of working on a, a whim, on an emotion. And, and, and then I started thinking about, what, what, what is it? Why? Why have I become so, so soft about her? You know, why am I, why is, why is it difficult for me to tell you this now? Why am I crying in my car as I'm driving home? As I'm telling you this story. I've changed. I've really fucking changed. There's something about having a child, having a, a, a baby, somebody that you are responsible for, somebody that you love so dearly. So, so dearly in your life. That, that just has, that just, I don't know, turns, turns you into a, like a, I wouldn't say an emotional wreck, but into an, an emotional being. And, you know, I, I had these emotions before. I was, you know, every once in a while I would see a, you know, a sad movie or something like that and cry to it. Or I'd see a, uh, you know, I would see something that would affect me or I would read something that would affect me or I would hear something, whatever, you know. I wasn't heartless, but... Now, it seems like everything that I look at, everything I read, everything I see, somehow relates to me and my relationship that I have with my daughter. I look into her face, into her eyes, every time I hold her close to me, every time I kiss her neck and hug her and tell her that I love her, I melt a little bit more. I've never known love like the love I feel for my daughter, and I'm sure that she feels the same way. 
nothing. Nothing in this world can match up to that feeling that I have for her. And I'm 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 sorry if if yes, all you parents out there are saying, duh, or what's the big news here? What's the big story? Why should I keep on listening? I don't know. I, I just feel like I should tell you this. I don't know where this is going. All I know is that I'm in a hurry to get home so I can see her before she goes to bed because I really need to see that little girl. So what else? I don't know. Maybe this is a good point to play some music. last night. Let's end this on a happy note. I mean, I got home last night. And it was great after kind of a, a, a hard day of, of thinking about these things, you know. I wasn't sort of 
thinking about them in the front of my mind. It was always kind of in the back of my mind that these thoughts were happening. But it, as I got home and, and I had that time to think on my car ride home to start to think a bit about these things. And I finally, you know, six o'clock came around because I've started going into work earlier. I've been trying to get there for seven, which it's seven o'clock now. I'm a little bit late, but the hope being that I get there at seven and I leave at six and, and that I get home in time to maybe feed my baby, definitely give her a bath, spend a little time playing with her and then read a story and, 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 and put her to bed. So she at least has that, that time with her father. Because as it was before, I wasn't working. Trying to get to work for eight o'clock and then coming home at seven, I was pretty much guaranteed to not see her for a couple days, unless she woke up early. I definitely wasn't gonna get home before she fell asleep. But anyway, I have to wrap this up quick. So, <laughs> I got home, pulled in the driveway and there was my wife sitting on the couch with my daughter and we have a big picture window in the front in our living room and the couch is directly in front of that and so they were hanging out on the couch my wife was holding my daughter and, and pointing out the window at me saying there's daddy daddy's home wave to him say hello there's daddy I could see your lips moving saying that and I could see my daughter kind of uh, looking searching around trying to figure out what it was that my wife was saying trying to understand what what the situation was and what all the excitement was. And uh, then suddenly as I got out of the car and started walking up the front walk towards the door, I was waving towards her and finally there was that recognition, that moment where you can hear, you can, you can just imagine the little voice in her head that goes, holy shit, there's daddy. <laughs> and so the big smile comes across her face and I can, I can hear her squeal and screech in, in delight and, and have that, that joy that, yay, daddy's home, hooray. And she kind of, she does a, it's not really a wave, it's more of a, a hand gesture where she puts her arm, her hand up, and, and she kind of—it's almost like a royal wave where she pivots at her wrist and she does little circles with her hand, and and then and then both arms went up and she grabbed her head and 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 she made the the squeaky squealy noise and and a big smile on her face, so happy to see her daddy. And it's those kind of moments that that those things are what are what make me tear up when I think about death and dying and and anybody's hardship or or you know just the anybody who misses out on something like that. I mean, it doesn't have to be children to give you those moments. There's the, we can have these moments in so many parts of our lives, but for me. It's so special. It's so great. It's such a heartwarming experience.
And it's those moments that make everything, all the shit in this world, all the fear, all the loneliness, the sadness, the insecurity, the unknown. It's those moments that make all that crap disappear.
Right, Baba Black Sheep. Baba. <laughs> Baba Baby. Good job. What do you need? What would you like? Water. You want some water? Mm. Okay. Do you want to sing any more songs? That'd be my favorite song. <laughs> 